We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real Steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to a very special edition of the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. Joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy. We have dressed up today because, my friends, we are exactly a year out from the World Cup in Qatar 2022. And maybe even more importantly, this is our 200th episode. So congratulations to us and thank you to everybody out there that watches, downloads, subscribes, and everybody here that works so hard to bring it to you each and every week. My friend, we got all dressed up here. We're looking good, as you are. I can't believe you're in khakis. Speak for yourself. Uh, those that know me know this is my regular attire wherever I go. Well, you look good. Uh, you, you look good. All right, so we're a year out from Qatar. Uh, I'm going to take you back a few years. And we're going to talk to a bunch of people, by the way, on this show. We got all sorts of guests, including, you know, the great Kobe Jones and Chris Wondolowski. Stu Holden's going to join us. And we're going to talk about a bunch of different things. But I want to take you back a number of years to when that envelope was opened and the word Qatar was on the, uh, the inside of it. What were your initial thoughts when Qatar was awarded the 22 World Cup? Uh, very surprised, and to acknowledge the elephant in the room, obviously there's been a lot of controversy surrounding that process. But also, you and I have spoken on this podcast about what a global game this is, and that wasn't always the case. The first eight World Cups from 1930 through 1966 were all in Europe or South America, and then Mexico got it a couple of times in 70 and 86, but even 86, it was a late replacement for Colombia. And so through 1990, it had just been Europe, South America, and Mexico. And then you look at it since then, United States in 94, South Korea and Japan in 2002, South Africa in 2010, now Qatar in 2022. So they are spreading it around and giving other parts of the world a chance to host this tournament, which is fascinating to me. All right. Well, as you know, I always have my State of the Union. I did a little special kind of celebratory uh, anticipatory type of State of the Union. So uh, take a listen to this, uh, and then we'll talk about it on the other side. Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Can you believe it? We're exactly a year away from the World Cup in Qatar. 
And it will be a World Cup unlike anything we've seen before. From the Middle East location in a country roughly the size of Connecticut to the November-December schedule to all eight stadiums within 45 minutes of each other. Everything is new and different. But that's kind of what makes it interesting and unique. What stays the same, though, is the undeniable power of the World Cup. When you live that power, it can change your life forever. Believe me, I know. The World Cup can form and change perception of people, countries, and cultures. It is used as an advertisement to the world. Players use it as a platform to stardom or legend. A year from now, the world will focus its attention on the nation of Qatar. There will be curiosity. There will be criticism. There will be beauty. There will be drama. It will be different and special. And it will be here before we know it. Here's hoping the U.S. team is there, too, to grab a hold of that opportunity and harness that power of the greatest sporting event in the world. All right, so anyway, that's, that, that's how I feel about this. Uh, to your point, um, I think that this is going to be interesting. I think it's going to be massively different. I went to the 1990 World Cup as a fan. I've been to and involved in World Cups since then. And everyone is unique. Everyone takes on a different uh, personality relative to the country and culture that it's in. I think this is going to, to, to be the same. What are some of the, uh, I guess, what are you excited about when it comes to this World Cup in Qatar? Well, the proximity of the stadiums right. to each other is fascinating. The fact that fans could go to multiple games on the same day. So that, that's a unique aspect to this that I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing how it pans out. It, it, it will be interesting because you're absolutely right. And I visited Qatar a few weeks ago, and I'm going to be going to Qatar in a few weeks. So I'm going to be an old hand when it comes to that. Uh, it, is, it is already, I can tell you, uh, a fascinating place. And I've talked a little bit about this uh, on the pod. But, you know, the proximity is absolutely something that rightfully needs to be pointed out and should be played up. And is one of the drawing things as far as I'm concerned, especially for people that are you know, on the fence about should I go, shouldn't I go? Well, your ability to get to multiple games is a selling point uh, out there. Now, the infrastructure is very, very interesting over there because they have built new roads, they have built subways, they are obviously eagerly awaiting and are going to welcome the world. And a massive um, uh, <laughs> a group of people are going to descend on Doha uh, and uh, for the World Cup. They are going to have to accommodate them. They're going to have to accommodate them when it comes to hotels, obviously restaurants, uh, transportation. And their, their reaction and ultimately what, what the experience that they have is going to be a reflection on the area and the people and the country and the culture. And they want it to go off well, which is why I said in the State of the Union that this is oftentimes used as an advertisement and no more so than what I think Qatar is showing itself in what they are, but what also what they uh, what they want to be. I'm excited to go to multiple games, but you know there's going to be a lot of people going back and forth. There's going to be press going back and uh, back and forth. Uh, we will have John Strong and, and Stu Holden, I'm sure, at times calling multiple games, and that in and of itself uh, will be a story. If you and I know you haven't been there yet, but if you were talking to someone, or even for yourself. What would sell you on going to this? Is it just the proximity and the ease of games? Or, or I mean, I know you're, you're an adventurist. You, you love things that you haven't experienced before, whether it's food or, or travel. Yeah, and for me, it's getting to know a part of the world that 
to be honest, I probably wouldn't visit on mm -hmm. my own. So it's a chance to, you know, through work that I, I've, I'm going to have to familiarize myself with a country that I, I know nothing about, frankly. There's, there's also, you know, some practical realities and challenges. Uh, we talked about being, you know, a World Cup happening in November and December. And that's something that no player in history has ever gone through when it comes to a World Cup. This is unique and never before tried. And who knows, maybe never again it'll, it'll happen. But given, you know, the rallies on the ground and the heat, and I can tell you having been there uh, closer to, to, to summer, it would have been very, very difficult. Although, um, and I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast, we did tour a stadium and the air condition, it is everything that they say it is in terms of the temperature there. They are able to literally make a completely different climate than what exists out the, outside the city. So I think from a comfort level, you are, going, you are going to be fine. But players are going to have to adjust, as coaches are going to have to adjust, having it come in November and December. We already know that the EPO, for example, has put out their schedule format where they are going to take a break and then go right back into it. Um, so that's going to be fun to see how these players and these teams adjust. It's going to be fascinating. It's almost like an international break, but to, oh, by the way, go play in a World Cup and then come back. And we, we know how important fitness is at World Cups. And so it's really going to be dictated a lot by what kind of shape these players are in because they're going to be in the midst of their club seasons. We know all the bumps and bruises that you pick up and which team is going to be the healthiest. And, you know, it is going to be interesting to see star players as that World Cup approaches. You hate to say it, but, uh, you know, if they have any sort of minor injury, are they going to not risk aggravating it and ask to sit out club games? Is that going to cause controversy? So uh, it's something that definitely bears watching. Now, uh, in previous World Cups, you have uh, been on the ground and you have prepared, learning, even learning different languages in preparation for being a man of the people and adjusting to whatever culture <laughs> that is happening. Can you see, and we, st we still have a year, but as I said in the State of the Union, it is going to come and go like that. Are you, are you thinking this far out and preparing as to what, <laughs> what you're going to do for Qatar? Well, as far as a language, I think maybe just trying to learn a few key phrases. I don't see myself uh, <laughs> learning Arabic the same way I did French ahead of the, la the Women's World Cup. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I, as you said, I love to travel and, and, and really get to learn new culture. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's something I'm actually really looking forward to. Uh, later in the pod here, uh, we are going to talk to the great Stu Holden and talk about you know, some of the, uh, the odds uh, when it comes to the team. But just, just in general right now, do you think that this helps or hurt any of the, the usual suspects uh, out there when they are uh, going to play in a November, December uh, window? Or is it pretty much all the same? Your usual suspects will continue to be, you know, your Francis and those types of teams? Yeah, I mean, pretty much all the teams that you would list as the top contenders, most of their players play in Europe. So they're going to be dealing with the same sort of calendar issues that we talked about. So, yeah, I don't see this uh, location inherently helping uh, any certain types of countries over others. I think it's going to be the usual suspects we talk about in every World Cup. I think the overarching question is uh, Europe has really dominated recently. They've won the last four World Cups. All four semifinalists in 2018 were European. So we know Argentina and Brazil have looked very good uh, in qualifying. Both have already uh, clinched their berths. And we covered the Copa America this past summer where they played in the final. And there's been this sort of overarching question of can either one of those two teams compete with the best in Europe, the France's, Belgium, Italy, if they qualify. Um, so I think that is the, the big overarching question heading into this World Cup. I mean, look, I, I think that this is going to be a seminal World Cup for a number of different reasons. Obviously, we've talked about, you know, the unique, uh, the unique aspects of what's going to happen. Uh, 
on and off the field. But I think, I, I think looking back, the way that we view the country and the culture uh, and, you know, and, the, and the people there is, is going to fundamentally change. And you know, we're, we're going to be on the ground. Obviously, we are broadcasting it. We are excited about it for a number of different reasons. But there's even going to be unique aspects of as we know, we live in a country where soccer isn't necessarily king. And so we'll be up against days that are filled with NFL games and things that we've never had to de- deal with in the past. And, you know, breakfast from Doha with regards to games that you are that you are seeing. And this is all this is all fun, but this is all also a challenge and a brave new world when it comes to broadcasting a, uh, a World Cup. We're going to talk about all of those different things as we go through uh, today's uh, today's show. But we really just wanted to. Uh, to, first off, recognize where we are uh, a year out from this incredible World Cup that is going to uh, happen in, in Qatar. And as I said, use that moment a year out to celebrate this, this labor of love that has been the State of the Union pod with my friend over here, uh, David Mossy, who uh, I will continue to thank you throughout this show and continue to thank everybody for tuning in and just following what uh, what we do. As I said, we, we dressed up. Uh, we even got some director's chairs and you know we spruced up the joint a little bit not that the, our, our set isn't great but we wanted to do something special and it it, it deserves a recognition and, and it deserves celebration for what we have done where we are right now uh and obviously where we are going and not just when it comes to the state of the union but everything that's going on with soccer including the world cup uh in qatar all right we're gonna take a real quick break uh, and when we come back, like I said, we got guests galore and we got all sorts of good stuff uh, coming up. So don't go anywhere. Welcome to the State of the Union podcast. Mossy and I got all dressed up because we are a year out from the World Cup in Qatar. And that deserves uh, a celebration. And we said, who can we get? Who can we get out there that understands what a World Cup is on and off the field? Well, we said we're going to go right to the top. We're going to go get a legend. We are welcoming to the State of the Union the one, the only, speaking of legends, Kobe Jones. Kobe, welcome. How are we doing? Absolutely fabulous. You look great. You look great. And, uh, you know, as as I said, uh, when it comes to World Cups, you having played in three of them, you have covered World Cups. As I said, you've been on and off the field. When when Qatar, take you back a few years, when Qatar was first announced as uh, the uh, World Cup for 2022, give me your initial thoughts. I was shocked. I think like like most of the world was. I mean, we knew that Qatar had the potential that it was going to be one of the players in there. But I think, let's be honest, I don't think anyone thought that they would be awarded the World Cup. So when it did come about, you know, there, there was shock on my part, and as we saw, shock and disappointment around the world. But now, fast forward, you know, we'll, we'll have to see, you know, what comes of it. It's not going anywhere. You know, that's where it's going to be. So we have to, we make the best of the situation and, and yeah, to take the positives. Positives, smaller country, ability to see so many games in in such a tight space, I think it kind of makes it a different World Cup experience than what we see. Yeah, unique. I mean, I mean, we were in 1994 with the U.S. We saw how that fundamentally changed not just not just soccer, but the perception of the c- culture that we have in the United States when it comes to soccer and the United States in general. And I, I would think that not just Qatar, but that region is looking uh, to do uh, the same thing. Um, OK, U.S. Uh, 
uh, men's national team right in the middle of qualification right now. Obviously, knock on wood, we're hoping that they are there in Qatar. So far in, so far good. They are in a position that if it ended today, they would be going to Qatar. Obviously, after the failure in 2017 of not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup, some pressure on Greg Berhalter and folks. But also, I think, and I'm, I'm interested to see how you see this team, a real optimism about this group, given the talent that we have, the, the youth that we have, uh, and I guess the potential that this group has. Yeah, this is where, you know, I won't say this, but a lot of people are talking about the golden generation, you know, once again. And and I will say that I'm excited for the future of this team because there are so many young players. I do think when you talk about golden generations, I always like to think, well, are we talking about they could be or they are? And, and right now they could be depending on how they perform and if they make it to the World Cup. I think that's an extremely important part. This team is fantastic. They have players that are playing at, on teams that are top teams around the world. So there's an expectation of top tier results. And right now they've put themselves in a very good position you know, to go forward and qualify. Uh, U.S. coming off a Dos Acero win over at Mexico during this last international window. <laughs> you played in the most famous Dos Acero at the 2002 World Cup. But there's been a lot of debate the last few days about which was the most important Dosa Cero in terms of flipping the rivalry. Some people take it all the way back to the 91 Gold Cup semis, Peter Vermey scoring that great goal. We know about all those qualifiers in Columbus. You were part of that generation that really flipped that rivalry. At which point do you look back and say, why well, it started to feel different when we played Mexico? Well, there's a big difference there between your, your comments there. There is, when it started to feel different for me, and I think those within the U.S. soccer world was in the 90s, when we started seeing some victories for the U.S. team in those early 90s going up to, you know, the late 2000s. I think the moment that it hit, you know, just the general public was in the World Cup. Because when you when you match up with your rival within your region for decades at the highest level, which is the World Cup, there is no excuses. There is no, oh, it's just a friendly. Oh, it's just this or that. You have to perform because everybody's watching and that's it. That's that's the match. And for us to get that two nothing victory, you know, that that will live in history, uh, you know, as I think the biggest moment, turning moment for U.S. soccer. Uh, speaking of the 2002 World Cup, that was in the pre-VAR era. How many times a day do you think about that Torsten Frings handball, <laughs> Hugh Dallas, no call, and if that was VAR, the U.S. would have moved on, maybe even won that World Cup? Yeah, you know what? You know what's funny? I, I always, a lot of people have been talking about this lately and asking me about this, and I always say, you know what? It's not just that it was a handball. He reached back where it was in the goal. You know, it, that would, would have been a penalty kick. It would have been a goal, you know, to this day. So I, I do think about it. It, it is, it is uh, disturbing because I start getting angry and upset about the potential of what could have been. But this, uh, you know, that moment and another big moment, I, I do like, I take comfort, a very, very small comfort in the fact that like a lot of the German players, or I should say some of the German players said, yeah, we were lucky that that game was called when it was because the U.S. was dominating and we probably would have lost. Although, as we saw in the RSL Sporting KC game, VAR has fixed all those issues. We don't have <laughs> yeah, long calls like that anymore. You're such a smartass. What is your yeah. problem? Are, we got dressed up here. We have to take it to a whole I know. Level. I feel like a banker today. Yeah. Very <laughs> All right, Cole, before we um, before we get into a little bit more specific when it comes to this World Cup a year from now in 2022 in Qatar, you, you mentioned um, kind of the evolution when you were talking about even the Dosa Zero and the U.S.-Mexico. Let's spread it out a little bit. I got on a plane with you the other day and I was thinking yeah. as we as we sat down in our seats, 
how many planes I have been on with you and how our lives have, have intertwined over the years and the things that we have seen when it comes to soccer. And look, I know that there's a whole generation that I'm so happy has so many different pathways and so many more advantages, but as kind of elder statesmen, Give people a little idea of how far we have come with this game. It's got to it's got to make you chuckle what you're doing right now, yeah. but it also has to make you kind of proud. Yeah, it, it makes me proud because, you know, we were a part of it. And we it's it, for those out there. They have to understand we suffered for the benefits of those that are here now. You know, I mean, the players now on the national team aren't fighting over who's going to get, you know, a, a business class seat or fighting over who's going to be, you know, sitting in the. The, the exit row while we had we were we were fighting like no I don't want the middle back bathroom you know that's how, how we traveled at times and it was difficult you know at times but I think what you, what you mentioned is is really important the opportunity to play this game and to experience this game at a young age is so different from when we came up I I tend to think like how much better could our generation have been if we had had soccer on TV at any moment at any time to learn from watching you know, all the time, instead of having to go to like a Mexican restaurant, pay a fee and crowd in a room to see a game. Those are some of the things that that we had to deal with where we didn't get the benefits. How how much better would our generation have been if we had actually had previous players coaching us, you know, with all the little minute details of the game? Because now what we're seeing, which I think is a big benefit, is former players are going into the coaching and being able to get, pass on that experience. For me, my, my coaches early on were the, the local football coach, you know, and that just tells you the differences of from then until now. The, the World Cup, we know, has an incredible power and it can change your life forever. I think both of us would uh, can attest to that. Give people an idea because come next November and December, a, a year from now in Qatar, it's going to change the lives of players, whether it's U.S. players or, or other players. So give, give people an idea of what that power is. The, the power is is that it can it can make you a household name, you know, where whatever wherever you're from, and that's the important part of it to be known, you know, just anywhere you go. I mean, us for our perfect examples is that people still come up to me, you know, and talk about that '94 experience, how important it was in their lives, and it was really odd for me because living through it, I don't think you digest it as much as when you look back on it about how important it was for all those fans, but also but also for us, because that changed how I really uh, looked at the game, how I approached the game, how how much more interest. It's funny that a World Cup gave me so much more interest in this game at every single level where I was just like, you know what? Perfect example. I want I want more more kids in this country to be able to participate and have that dream of going to a World Cup. So it got me involved in those different things to really help at, at the youth ages. But a World Cup is like nothing else. You gotta remember, there's billions that will be watching those games and they can really, can change your life financially, emotionally, you know, in every way that you can think of. You wanna go, Mossy? You got a question? I can see, I can see it brewing in that. Well, no, just to follow up on that, you experienced the highs and lows of it. The highs of 94, mm -hmm. the low of 98. Some might call that a fiasco, that World Cup. <laughs> but then the redemption in 2002. So. Uh, how do you, when you reflect on your World Cup career, uh, th that roller coaster that it was, how, how do you reflect on it? I reflect on it exactly as you said, there were highs and lows. I'm thankful that there are a lot more highs, you know, than lows in, in my World Cup career, just in my national team career. Um, it's, it can be so exhilarating, you know, after like 94, you know, where, where we, 
accomplish something that no one expected that we would be able to accomplish and held ourselves, we could hold ourselves uh, to a higher standard. We could hold our heads high after the game against Brazil, where we were like, okay, we accomplished. And then in 98, like you said, it, it was, it was, yeah, it was a fiasco. You know, I, I, I admit it was a bit of a disaster, you know, because we had expected to be somewhere and we didn't even come close to it. And then in 2002, that redemption was extremely important. Um, I'm extremely happy that I was able to end my career and with the national team at the World Cup level, you know, with that positive feeling. And I think it's allowed me to really look at that whole experience through the 10 plus years as positive you know, overall and, and, and being part of a group that accomplished goals. All right. Well, let's, so let's tap into some of that experience, because as you know, when you get to a World Cup, all sorts of crazy shit can happen. All right. On and off the field. We under we understand that. I know uh, we have a, we have a couple of things that we want to uh, throw by you uh, when it comes to this World Cup, as we said, a year from now in Qatar. Um, OK, so how about some of these things? World Cup curses, shall we say, things that, you know, the, the, the soccer gods seem to giggle at times during a World Cup and go down and say, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. All right. Tell us if this is if this is going to happen. You ready? Will France, the defending World Cup champions, but we know they are, talk about, well, not necessarily a fiasco, but certainly a dysfunctional type of group <laughs> over the years. Will France crash out of the group stage in Qatar 2022? Ooh, I'm going to go with yes, because I think things are cyclical. Yeah, and remember, after France won the 98 World Cup in 2002, the next World Cup, they didn't score a goal. So I think, like I said, cyclical. So I think they may have some problems, especially as you said, they're yeah. dysfunctional as it is already. Masi, what's more enjoyable, watching France dominate and be and play beautiful soccer and win a World Cup, or completely be dysfunctional uh, <laughs> on and off the field and crash out in a blaze of glory? Oh, dysfunction for sure. <laughs> and keep in mind, the last three defending champions went out in the group stage: Italy 2010, Spain 2014, Germany 2018. So it's a remarkable recent trend. We'll see if France can break that. All right, next one. Um, our friends Mexico, right? Uh, they're, they're they're struggling right now. It's kind of mm -hmm. fun and interesting yeah. to watch them struggle right now. And when I say struggle, they're still in a in, a, in an opportunity and a place where they can not only qualify but certainly do well at the World Cup. But for them, doing well at the, at the World Cup has always been about getting to that fifth game. So, will Mexico make it past the fifth game, and will they even qualify for Qatar a year from now? Okay, they will qualify for okay. Qatar. We have to remember, I believe they have four games still. At four of their at, six at, still at home, yes. So they're in a good position. Um, getting past, uh, was it five games? Yeah. Was that it? Nah, no, no. no. I, I, don't, I don't have faith in that. I think, I think, talk about dysfunctional. I think there's going to be a lot of dysfunction with this uh, Mexican team over the next, next month, without a doubt. But it, going into the World Cup, there's always seems to be controversy that gets kind uh, of, kind of, builds up for that team. And I think it's going to continue through the World Cup. All right. So Mexico not doing that. France crashing out after uh, doing well. Here's another uh, of the uh, the trio here of things that are almost guaranteed at some point. Will England lose in penalties? <laughs> if they go to penalties, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer in the cyclical of, of life. And uh, yeah. Well, I, this I, isn't I cyclical with them. This is just a straight line of <laughs> losing in penalties. <laughs> All right, so you got England. You got yeah. England losing in penalties. You don't have Mexico uh, doing anything that they haven't done yeah. in the past and not getting over that hump. And you do have France cra uh, crashing out. That in and of itself is reason to watch the 2022 World Cup yeah, in Qatar. Excitement. It's going to be an exciting one, I think. I think this is going to be different than every anything else that we've seen. U.S. is going to be there. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And is it a successful World Cup? 
Ooh, uh, what do you mean? For the, for US? the U.S.? For, for the, the US? U.S.? Yes, I have belief in this group that, that they'll do something special. We believe, right? Yeah, we believe. We, we believe. The great Kobe Jones, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us here on the State of the Union podcast. You can catch him uh, on air and just being uh, a general wonderful person and a wonderful ambassador for the game over the years on and off the field. We thank you, Kobe. Uh, we wish you luck and look forward to working with you. And hopefully we are all there a year from now to celebrate a great World Cup that does include the U.S. men's national team. Thanks. Welcome to the State of the Union. Uh, when we go big, we go big, all right? We say we want legends to talk to, and that's what we have gotten today. One of the all-time greats, by the way, on or off the field. So uh, the, his, his playing credentials are impeccable, but the only thing that surpasses them is how awesome of a guy he is. If you ever get a chance to spend any time with the great Chris Wondolowski, do it. You will be better for it as a human being. We welcome into the State of the Union the great Chris Wondolowski. How are you, my friend? Doing well. I uh, appreciate you guys having me. And uh, yeah, it's always, it's always fun hanging with you too, Lexi. All right, listen, it looks like we got some sort of hostage video going on here, but we're going to work through it. And even then, you look great, my friend. You look like a man who has had the weight of the world taken off your shoulders, or maybe more so is looking forward into that incredible adventure that is a life after kicking a ball. My first question to you, and I know you've been asked this, but I want to ask it anyway, because maybe it changes even with time. Why now have you decided to walk away from the game? Uh, you know, I think that there's just a lot of different different opportunities that come about. And, uh, you know, I think that this was the right time for myself and for the team. I think that was just a clean cut. Uh, you know, every day, uh, you know, the body was getting a little bit older, a little bit more uh, tired, a little bit slower. Uh, you know, I, I felt good out there. I still, uh, I love being out there and uh, I enjoyed the practices and the battles. And that's definitely what I'm going to miss the most, but uh, game days too. But it was, it was definitely, I think, time for for me to start a new chapter, and I'm I'm, I'm excited for it. I'm how also I do have how, how, how does it manifest, Chris? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but how does it manifest? I can't let this go because people ask me all the time, "How do you know? How do you know when it's done? How does it manifest on a day to day basis? Is it is it just the you know your knee doesn't work the same the same way, or you miss a shot here, or you don't feel as fast, or how how did you know that from a physical perspective and maybe even a mental perspective? That it wasn't going to get any better. No, I mean that's the thing is, uh, I mean I'm very grateful for especially our strength and conditioning coach uh, Guido uh, really kind of turned a page. So when you hit the gym, you start. Uh, you know, I actually knew my way to the gym. Uh, you know, I, I didn't even know there was one for a few years, and so that, that definitely helped, and it uh, you know inspired it, and uh, you know I think helped me prolong for a few years. But again, I think it was more of just like the little things, like the joints, like my toes, like my big toes, uh, getting up and getting them warmed up, my ankles. Uh, you know, it was one of those things where I definitely started feeling like a tin man um, by the by the end of it. And so I was always my greatest fear was just being uh, a burden for a team. And, uh, you know, I, I think that I was starting to tread that way. Uh, we covered the playoff game last year where you scored that amazing stoppage time equalizer against Sporting KC. Uh, do you have a favorite goal when you look back on your MLS career? Was it when you surpassed Landon? Is there one that stands out above the rest? Oh, uh, yes, actually. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny, too, especially with Alexi being here. Uh, you know, it's my 2010. Uh, it's a playoff goal against New York Red Bull. And uh, it was a playoff goal. And uh, that, that was a rare one for me. But uh 
just to cap off that that year, 2010, I was kind of my breakout year. And even Alexi at halftime was like, this, this guy, Chris Wondolowski, he's just going to be a flash in the pan. And uh, to come out <laughs> in the second half and to get the game winner, beat, beat Thierry Henry uh, on his home field, uh, that was to knock him out of the playoffs. Uh, that, that one just always kind of resonates with me and uh, holds most weight for me. I, I have never been more happy to be wrong. I remember getting that question. And look, you, you, you hadn't done what, what you, uh, obviously anything yet. And I was looking at it and uh, I, you know, I got asked the question and I answered honestly, which is what I do. But be, believe me, uh, it, it's not the first or the last time that I have been wrong. And you went on and proved not just me, but so many other people uh, wrong with your longevity uh, and your incredible success. So, uh, and, I, and I knew at that moment, uh, that there was something special that I uh, that I was watching, but I didn't realize that you were going to go on to such a legendary status when it comes to it. All right, so after you actually finish your career now and you and you moved on, as I said, I think you look like a man that is looking forward. Your current capacity with the San Jose Earthquakes, and not only are you an MLS legend, but let's be honest, a lot of it is relative to the San Jose Earthquakes, a team that is near and dear to your heart. You are going to be working with them. Do you have a title yet? And what is it? What what, what responsibilities have you been given? Um, so it, it's special assistant to the general manager, but I'm pretty sure it means like special assistant to the regional manager or, uh, <laughs> to the regional manager. So, uh, you know, but I, I'm very grateful and, um, uh, because it gives me a lot of flexibility in my job. And so uh, being able to hit uh, many different points where I think the organization, you know, need, needs, uh, some holes filled. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest ones is, uh, the do domestic scouting and, uh, to really identify some of the talent and not only in the Bay area and in California, but then, uh, you know, regionally and all over the United States. And so that's something that I, uh, really am looking forward to and something that, you know, I find uh, a lot of joy in too. Shifting gears to the U S national team, uh, center forward has been a bit of a trouble spot the last few years. At one point, we thought Josh Sargent might be the savior, then Daryl DK. It seems like everybody's settled on Ricardo Pepe now. You know a little something about the center forward position. Um, what are your thoughts on Pepe as a player, and do you think he can be the guy for the next few years to lead that U.S. attack? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I think he's unbelievably wise beyond his years. Uh, you know, he's he's got that youth, and, uh, you know, I think he... He has such a high ceiling. You know, I think that, you know, if he continues along the path, he he's already contributed greatly to the team and, uh, you know, already what he's done in MLS. And so, you know, I, I'm looking forward to, to the future and also what he brings. You know, I think that the way that the U.S. is playing right now, I think it fits his system. I, you know, it fits his style. I think that with his movement in the box, it's uh, so hard to track in his, his technical ability. Uh, you saw during the All-Star game, uh, the skills challenge and his finishing. Uh, you know, I, I think that it, it's on another level. And so I think he will continue to grow at that. And uh, like I said, I think you get, you know, Christian Pulisic and, uh, you know, some of these guys around him uh, just make him better. Can I uh, ask you to kind of delve into the, the mind and the mindset of a goal scorer? And there's nobody better to ask than you. And especially when it comes to the international level, uh, certainly you played internationally, you played in, in World Cups. And, and I ask you this because I think that there are lessons to be learned in terms of the pressure that players are under. Uh, the ability to recover, obviously, from mistakes. I mean, you famously missed a, missed a shot in a World Cup. And I, and I know I, I have so much respect for the way that you have addressed that and talked about that and actually used it as a lesson, not just for yourself, but others out there in terms of being, in a strange way, forgetful and being able to move on and go on from that kind of stuff. But 
Give us an idea of what it takes from a mental perspective at both the club level and the international level to just consistently go out there and do the most difficult thing in our game, which is to actually put the ball in the net. You know, it's, it's difficult. And uh, the reason and the main reason it is difficult, it's uh, about, you know, six inches between uh, the ears. You know, it's uh, it here, you know, just being you know, you're so conscious of it. And I know for myself, uh, this was one of my biggest flaws is when I went to the US team, I wanted it so badly that I would do almost too much. I would run myself out of bad, out of good positions. I would then create, you know, bad positions because I wanted it so much. I would be chasing down the ball when not needed. And, you know, when I was with the earthquakes, I felt relaxed. I knew where to be. I felt comfortable. And, you know, it's, it's, difficult at times to make that transition, but when it is seamless, it's, uh, it's amazing. And it just clicks. And especially when you're playing with some of those talented, uh, talented players as well, it it becomes fun. And when it becomes fun, it's a game, you're enjoying it and your confidence grows and it snowballs. And you can see for Ricardo Pepe right now, he's, he's loving it. And I think uh, he's going to continue to grow on that. And I think that it's, it's been a very, seamless transition for him. And, uh, you know, that's not always an easy thing. Uh, we're on the eve of the MLS playoffs. Uh, if you were a betting man, who do you think wins MLS Cup this year? Uh, one thing in the 17 years of playing and also watching even before is don't bet on MLS. It's crazy. You, you're <laughs> crazy if, if, you, if you're going to have it because uh, always something is... But um, I, I like Kansas City. I don't know. Um, I, I, like their, I like their style. They come up to play uh, most playoffs. I, I like Peter Vermees. I think he's uh, going to get them uh, tactically ready. But that being said, you, you can get anyone out of uh, the West. And then you look over in the East as well. And NYC looks uh, very dangerous. I think Nashville can make a deep run. And so it's, uh, I think it's going to be one of the more entertaining playoff seasons. All right, Wando, listen, uh, you are anything but a flash in the pan, my friend. You are a U.S. soccer legend, obviously an MLS legend, a San Jose Earthquakes legend uh, for a number of different reasons, not the least of which over time uh, it, it became very apparent that you believe in yourself and you have people that support you on and off the field, whether it's your family. I remember talking to your father. Uh, you know, all, all of that stuff has combined to make you not just a legendary soccer player, but also just a wonderful person. And I just reiterate before. Before we let you go, if you do have a time to sit down with Chris Wondolowski, do it. I wish you all the luck in the world going forward. I hope you are even halfway as successful off the field uh, in your endeavors as you were on the field. And from all of us here and people that are watching and listening, thank you, thank you, thank you for everything that you have done for soccer, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Always uh, big fans and uh, love what you guys do and love to be a part of this game. And so uh, I really appreciate that. Thank you. The great Chris Wondolowski here on the State of the Union podcast. Thank you so much. And we will be back with more. All right, welcome to the State of the Union podcast. we got a special segment here, uh, obviously celebrating a year out from the World Cup in Qatar, and we're gonna talk about odds. And in order to do that, we thought we'd bring in somebody special who certainly understands uh, what a World Cup is all about, and we're gonna, we're gonna pick his mind a little bit. The great Stu Holden joining us here. All right, Stu, uh, our friends over at Fox Bet uh, have given us the responsibility and the honor 
of showing to everyone, including you and all of us here, for the first time, the odds, the current odds, hot off the press when it comes to teams and the odds of them winning the World Cup in Qatar. This is via Fox Bet. As I said, brand spanking new odds. They change with the hour with all the different things that are happening on and off the field. Stu, what stands out to you uh, on first glance here? Yeah, well, having Brazil as the favorite doesn't come as a surprise how good they've been in World Cup qualifying. Masi can attest to that. But this is also a Brazilian team that goes into every tournament as one of the betting favorites. They went out in the quarterfinals in 2018 to Belgium, who aren't even in the top five when this one comes out. There's a couple things. You know, Germany's an interesting bet to me at plus 900. Hansi Flick in charge there. They have been red hot coming off of two disappointing World Cups. So I think they're an interesting team in Qatar that could bounce back. France at plus 600. Look, the defending champions from 2018, they went out in a penalty shootout in the Euros and I think still have a team that is stacked with young talent, still has an incredible ability. But look, I mean, all of these teams will be in the mix. It's about betting and getting value and getting your bets in early because you could bet on Brazil plus 550 here and then you get six months out from the World Cup, they might have some big injuries that change their odds significantly. So there is value in getting your betting odds in early, a year out, Lex, but still, there's, you know, these are things that they're going to change, they're going to bob and they weave, and you can actually add to your bets as you get closer to this tournament. Buddy, you're a savant over there. Uh, you, I see that beautiful mind of yours working here. What, uh, you know, how are you going to win some money here? Well, here's what I would say. The last four World Cups have been won by European nations. And so all throughout qualifying, you mentioned Brazil and Argentina have done well. They've both already clinched berths, but there's been this overriding question of, are either of them good enough to go up against the top teams from Europe. So we covered the Copa America mm -hmm. this summer. Argentina won it, which they're not even in this top five, which is interesting. They're unbeaten in 27 games, won the Copa America. Uh, but they have Brazil on top. Did you come away from the Copa America feeling like either Brazil or Argentina are good enough to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Frances and Germanys and perhaps this might be the World Cup where South America could wrestle that trophy back? Yeah, I, I do because I, I feel Brazil's last World Cup they won was that 2002, I believe, right? South Korea. So you're, you're considering that now Qatar, we're going to be in the Middle East. Um, it's out of Europe, thankfully, for all South American teams and all other teams because winning Europe, the European teams win. Um, you know, you mentioned Argentina. I think they're just a little bit longer than Germany. They're at plus 1,000. There's some interesting ones that you can get beyond the top five where you can get some really good value. One that I like, uh, Italy plus 1,000, the Euros champions. If they, like if, if they qualify. If they qualify, <laughs> still have to qualify. It's hard to win money. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that goes up and maybe it goes down. And maybe that's why it's an opportunity right now if you get an early bet in on Italy, even if then they don't qualify, because you'd imagine those odds will come in a little bit. The USA also... This might not be our year, 2018. Again, if we qualify, uh, um, plus 6,600. So that's pretty good money, money there. there if you if you bet it on the U.S. I wonder what... Everyone's so bullish and excited and optimistic <laughs> about this team. Yeah, you can hey, all American money. fans should at least put 50 bucks or 10 bucks on the U.S. Hey, you're gonna, you can win 660 bucks. All right, so my little brain, you guys are very, very smart, but my little brain uh, can, can only comprehend so much. And so, you know, I was talking to Andrew Lynch, who was off camera here, and he was trying to explain to me, so I understand, because there's people that are watching here that maybe don't understand how all these numbers work. And please correct me if I'm wrong. Believe me, he is over there and he's ready to completely shut this thing down if I say <laughs> anything that is wrong. But, uh, you know, he, he and his team over there have come up with this. All right, so here's what happens. You bet 100, let's take for example France, okay? Defending yeah. World Cup champions. If you bet $100, okay, you win $600, which means that you win, everybody's screaming, allez, 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 and they're gonna give you back $700. The $600 you won and the $100 that, uh, you, uh, that you spent, right? Good, okay, I got that. 
There's another way to look at it is this. Okay, uh, this is about winning the World Cup, right? If there were seven World Cups, because I take the 600 there, I move my decimal over two points, so six, I add the one. Out of seven World Cups, what's, uh, what Foxbet believes is that out of seven World Cups, France is going to win one of them. So that's another way of, uh, of looking yeah. at it, right? Good? Thank God, that was a lot of pressure right there. Uh, okay, so, but I think context is also important, mm -hmm. right? We got to look at history. We're going to look at numbers. We're going to look at the, the past history. We're going to make educated bets here, right? We're not just throwing our money away here. So let's look back at, for example, 2018 when it comes, uh, it comes to the odds. Uh, as we know, this was in, uh, this was in Russia. Anything, as, as we also know, as I said, uh, France won. You would have won $650 uh, there. Argentina, $950 right there. Spain, Germany. Interesting Germany, uh, to look at Germany right there. And this is where you can get into trouble, right? A favorite before the World Cup happens. We all know they didn't even get out of the, uh, out of the group. It was an incredible failure uh, for one of the perennial favorites when it comes to uh, Germany. So all sorts of things uh, can change. Anything stand out to uh, you in 2018, either of you guys? And then we'll go to 2014 to take a look well, back. I think the thing that stands out to me is that one team out of this list was in the semifinals. And that was France, who went on to win it. Brazil lost to Belgium in the quarterfinals. Germany didn't get out of the group. Spain had a poor showing. Argentina barely got out of their group and then uh, lost. And so, you know. So anything can happen, is what but, you're saying. But what I would say is an interesting way to look at it and play it. So Brazil typically throw 2018 out. We'll get to the semifinals of a World Cup. So if you're taking them at plus 450 and get them odds in on them early, they get to the, the semifinals, then you can start to bet on the other teams that they're playing against to hedge that bet that you'd made a year out. I might have to explain that one to you because you're looking at me very, uh, with Sorry, a stoic look here. It <laughs> it's the same look that I gave most of my math teachers uh, growing up. Uh, Mossy, you want to go back to, to Brazil? Let's go to two thousand. Oh, you want to say, okay, sorry, okay, okay, sorry. The unpredictability of uh, World Cups. I was super high on Spain going to 2018. They were in a great run of results. I did not know they were going to sack their manager the day before the start of the tournament in And so they ended up going out to Russia, the host in the round of 16. So it, it goes to show you, you think a team has it all set up and they're poised to do well and something like that happens. All right, so let's see if we can get to 2014 because that was, uh, and please remind me, where was that World Cup again, Mossy? That was in Brazil. This, by the way, is ridiculous. What happened here is Brazil won the Confederations <laughs> Cup in 2013, a tournament that John Strong and Stu Holden tried to scrub from the record books this summer when we were covering the Copa America. They tried to peddle this nonsense that Neymar has never won an international trophy. He did win that Confederations Cup, but... That created this myth that it was this big, bad Brazil team that was virtually unbeatable at home. That team had no business being the favorite with Fred and Joe as the center forwards and uh, Paulinho and Luis Gustavo in the midfield and David Luiz at the back. I think that's the worst Brazil squad on paper they've ever brought to a World Cup. So how they're at the top of these odds was beyond me. And they got found out in the semifinals in a major way. But I think the other thing to note here is you look at the winners. They've typically been within the top five of right. the betting odds when those have come out. And France were, what, the third or fourth longest odds. Germany, they're the third longest. So, you know, it, that's why I'm saying put a bet on one of the teams in the top five. It's pretty hard to win a World Cup when you consider all the different elements at play and consistency and tournament play and that one of the big boys... So, so here's my little brain working, right? So I'm saying, okay, yeah, it's easy to put it on, you know, the elites and stuff like that, but I want to win some money, okay? I want to yeah. win, I want to win a lot of money, okay? So I want to kind of go for for a long shot. Now, I'm not saying that Belgium's a long shot, but Belgium at 1400 here. Uh, the interesting thing for me and for uh, for, uh, for all of us here, so we know right now as we speak, once again uh, via Fox Bet, Belgium is plus 1200, okay? So not a whole lot of change from what they are, but that's the point. 
is this, is that a sucker bet? Right, because we know what Belgium is with their incredible talent, this this generation that is constantly we're, we're constantly waiting for it to happen. We were talking uh, off air about the uh, the roulette wheel, where you're looking at all the different numbers and stuff like that, and you're saying, well, of course it has to happen. Eventually, it has to hit. When it comes to someone like Belgium, everybody is kind of saying, eventually they have to live up to this. Eventually, they have to be World Cup champions with all the talent that they have. Is it a suffer uh, a sucker bet right now? It's a romantic bet, I would say. You, you know, you're hoping, and it wouldn't be a bet that you would put a larger amount of money on and that's why the, the odds are so long but i would say you can use bets like that to your advantage if you think that say belgium or germany are a good bet to get to the final four so put your bet on germany then say that they're matched up against brazil in the semi-finals and then you can bet on brazil to win that semi-final match knowing that you've already got the bet on germany that if they win they're going to be in the final and then if they got to the final you still have your plus 900 bet and then you could bet on the other team knowing that you're going to win either way. Still is quite the savvy. I mean, I think, I, I, I think the math works out. But yeah. all right, uh, last couple of questions here for both of you. Uh, Stu, if you were to take the Holden money, right? Yeah. And put it on one team. So you got to, you know, you're, you're, you're sure bet. Talking like small bet or kids at No, all, kids at, all of the money that you have and you're putting it on one team. Who are you putting it on? For, two, uh, for uh, Qatar in 2022. Uh, I would put it on in Brazil. You put it on Brazil. Yeah. Now, if you were to take all the lawless money, therefore it's not your money. I put it on you, Germany. You put it on Germany? Yeah, I, because with your money, I'd be a little bit more risky. I, and yes, that's the whole point. Because if you lose it, I'm, I'm not that bothered. You don't I care about even, my kids. I might okay. even put it on Argentina plus 1,000. The romantic part, just to get Mossy mad that Argentina could win a World Cup and Messi could win his first World Cup. Like, that's where Messi fans will have a romantic vested interest and they'll say, hey, I might want to put a hundred bucks and if Wes Messi wins his first ever World Cup and Argentina win, I'm going to win a thousand bucks and everybody goes home What about happy. you, Mossy? Putting all your money on one thing. So first off, put all your money. So this is absolutely- Because we know it's a lot of money. Of course. Um, <laughs> State well, of the Union. Famous last words, but I'm actually starting to become pretty confident about Brazil. Um, so I would probably put my money on Brazil. Oh, um, sweet mother of God. Really? That's what you're doing? Again, yes. Brazil? And then, you know, I I'm just fascinated to see if France can break this defending champion's hex. The last three World Cups, the defending champion went out in the group stage. So much talent there, though. I mean, to take a squad that was already good enough to win it and add Kareem Benzema to the mix is preposterous. So, I don't know. I'd maybe take a bet on them that they might you be know, the defending champion you finally. England, you know the money's coming home. To the bookies. Right, so, exactly. That's you know, the only thing that's, uh, that's coming home. Uh, I <laughs> am, where would you put my money? Where would you put All yours? All right, so I would put your, well, I would put my money on Germany at, uh, for a bounce back, right? After the last World Cup. They're not going to let that stand after what happened. Uh, so I put it on, and what I get, 900 there. Um, I would put your money, uh, that would be romantic. And I would definitely, find no, finally, <laughs> no. Not that romantic, okay? I mean, it's within reason when it comes to romance. Uh, I would do Belgium because I think at some point it comes good, but I am that person at the roulette, roulette table where the numbers are all there and you say, well, it's gotta show up at 22 at some point without the knowledge that it's so always 50-50. you walk 50 into the table, you see seven blacks and you're like, right, the of course next one's it has to Of course it has to change, yeah, which yeah. I'm told makes no sense at all. It's much, <laughs> you know, it's hard, it's romance. I would bet on the U.S. if they got rid of Greg Berhalter and hired a foreign coach. For <laughs> so, of course, you, of course, you had to do that. Well, listen, wait, you must have the stats. So, when was the last time a coach, a, a national team, won with a coach from a foreign country? Uh, for the men's side, it's never happened. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, listen, we should all be so lucky, whether we win money or not. If uh, the U.S. were to win. 
Uh, you can find all of this uh, constantly being updated over there at Foxbet. We appreciate all of our uh, all of our friends and Andrew for for keeping us aligned over there and doing all the different things. It's fun, and as we said, it's going to change week by week, uh, month by month as we get uh, closer to the World Cup. A year out from the World Cup in Qatar, uh, we'll come back with Stu Holden and some more here on the State of the Union podcast. Welcome back to a special edition of the State of the Union podcast, celebrating a year out from the World Cup in uh, Qatar and celebrating our 200th episode of the State of the Union. We got Stu Holden here. Uh, Stu, there is, uh, it seems like it doesn't matter if there's an international break, if there is a window, there is uh, controversy, there is criticism, there is consternation, there is angst when it comes to the American soccer public for what this U.S. men's national team is, maybe what it isn't. We go through another uh, window here, only two games uh, this window. Uh, we talked about the incredible result against Mexico. They follow it up by going down to Jamaica and not getting a horrible result in 1-1, but certainly not. It was interesting to me to see the reaction and how many people were you know, disappointing, but, but also angry and expected more from on the road against Jamaica getting a point. What were your uh, thoughts of, uh, of that game? I, I was okay with it. The, the, the window, uh, I think we all came in, in totality, saying, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. we came in saying, look, U.S.-Mexico, U.S.-Jamaica on the road, four points, however you get it. The U.S. got four points. Um, the, the performance against Mexico, I felt, was the best that we've seen. Uh, I know you guys have already covered uh, that game, but that, that was what, a 90-minute performance looks like under Greg Berhalter, I think executing ideas, playing with an intensity, playing uh, well with the ball at their feet and creating chances and really dynamic. I mean, check everything that he'd wanted and promised us early on, I think we saw it there. You turn it around, you play against Jamaica on the road. I've played down there, I, I know you have too. They're not the easiest conditions when it comes to field and, and all of that. And you saw the ball bouncing up multiple times on the shin. So of course it comes becomes a little bit of a different game. And where the U.S. I felt lacked in that game was with part of their intensity after they conceded the goal. And I think what we're forgetting here is that going into the octagonal, Jamaica was one of the teams that everybody was picking could make a run mm -hmm. for that top three. Like, they started really poorly, but this is still a team that if you go back to early on in the octagonal, in their first couple of games, they didn't have the guys that are playing over in the U.K. They didn't have Mikhail Antonio. So they didn't have some of their best players this is a better team now, and it was a much better version of what the U.S. saw the last time. Well, they well what I hear is Stuart Holden uh, calling the U.S. soccer fan base out there greedy. Oh, so now you're going to get me to fight with the U.S. soccer fan hey, base. Hey, listen, Great. you're the one that said uh, it. Look, I think expectations have risen so high now based on performances. So now U.S. soccer fans know what this team is capable of. So, of course, when the performances don't reach that level... There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be finger pointing because the expectation is going to every game that the U.S. should get three points. What was said at the start of qualifying? Win at home, tie on the road. Now, I know the U.S. tied against Canada, so then you're saying, okay, they dropped a couple points. We've seen that Canada are actually a really good team in this cycle, and they're a tough team to play against. Jamaica, as we said before, this is not an easy team, especially on the road. You're missing Weston McKinney through suspension. Miles Robinson was out. No uh, Gio Reyna. Christian Pulisic came off the bench, still not fit to go 90 minutes. If you put that in totality, I, I think this was a successful window for the U.S. that has put them in a phenomenal position. Canada won against Mexico. They're top. The U.S. are in second place. It's a four-horse race, and I still feel confident. I feel much more confident in this team 
off of even these two performances than I did early on in that first window when it was very much uh, squeaky bum time, as they say. Uh, one lineup decision that's gotten a lot of attention. Are you surprised Zach Steffen started both games and it's pretty clear that the pecking order is Steffen one, Matt Turner two? You know, I think Greg created that that controversy and has seemed to have found a way because Stefan matched it in the Mexico game with a big performance that he could say Stefan's my guy. I think we all felt Stefan would be his guy. And I know, you know, Greg Berhalter before the Jamaica game said, well, Stefan's in there because of his feet. Well, his distribution wasn't very good against right. Jamaica when he was pressed. And why? Because also the ball's bobbling up and he's trying to pick out guys on the far right hand side, that wasn't a big part of the game for me against Jamaica. It never was going to be. And really, he had two instances he had to come up with big saves. It was Mikhail Antonio was in behind. He stayed, uh, forced him wide. He pushed it. He came up with one or the save. And then, you know, a 40 yard thunderbolt that there's a big debate. Could he have saved it? I, I, I in that instance, want to say and that's a heck of a goal and, you know, tip your hat to a Roldy. But I do think Zach Steffen was going to come back. What's going to be interesting to me, Mossy, if he remains as the number two for Man City, which he will through the World Cup, you know, I, I don't think that's an ideal situation to have a guy going into a World Cup in that type of form. I expected a win in Jamaica. I, I will settle for the point. So in that sense, I think that there is some perspective in order and, I, and I'm okay yeah. with it. Having said that, uh, first off, when it comes to the environment, right? That was not a hostile environment. No. Was, the, was the ground bumpy? Yeah, the ground was bumpy. All right, get over it and uh, figure out how to play. And, and certainly it's not conducive to a team like the U.S. that, to your point, wants to play out of the back, wants to keep the ball and all that kind of stuff. And that was, while it was the office, that was, it was not a completely empty office, but it was a pretty vacant office. Let's be <laughs> yeah. honest in what it was. And even in the best of times, that place has a track. It has the, uh, the velodrome uh, type of thing going on there. So it's not... It's not a difficult place to play. Having said that, you get your, uh, your points on the road. But again, because of what this team is and what we expect this team, I think that there was an expectation and there was a, an element of, of letting us down. Yeah. And, and, and I think what was interesting is that what happened later on in the night, you remember uh, um, Memo Choas talked about the man in the mirror, right? But there's, there's a certain aspect of Canada, our friends to the north, which are long suffering. Last time they qualified for a men's world cup was 1986. Okay. I was 16 years I old. Was one. Oh my God. I, well, there you go. I was 16 <laughs> years old and it's, it's been a long time. And for them to do what they have done in the whole and so far in qualifying, and then to have that kind of that epic moment up there in Edmonton in the snow and to beat Mexico two to one and 50,000 people, all that kind of stuff. In the context of that happening, I think a lot of people looked at what we did down in Jamaica and were even more disappointed at, at that. Yeah. Is that fair? I, I think that's fair because the U.S. in essence had that moment, though, at home against Mexico right. in Cincinnati, right? right? Like that was our, you know, big match in, in the octagonal so far. And then it was inevitable the next game in an empty office down in Jamaica, there was going to be a letdown from that. And I, I think that's where... Again, it's tough to prepare that, right? Like, how much can we say this is on Greg Berhalter? Because there were things without the game, throughout the game. I thought the U.S. played too deep defensively, uh, maybe afraid of Jamaica's pace in behind, but that left them stretched. It led to the first goal. Sure. Uh, not, enough, that, not enough MLS, MLS players yeah, yeah. on the field. Uh, I, I don't think that we, we were too stuck to playing the way that we want to play, which is pretty and on the ball. And at times, I'm okay in these games. Hey, dump it in behind. Let wow. Tim Weyer run. Wow. Go get the ball. Force Jamaica back. I thought back. you were romantic. I mean, you wanted, about to, winning, you wanted to get you pragmatic. Know, huh? okay, I, I did want them to be pragmatic, but also there's ways to then squeeze Jamaica in tight. Sure. Jamaica aren't a great team playing on the ball. So I think Greg Berhalter, 
if I'm going to grade him out of a 10 in that game, probably a 6. I don't think Gianluca Buzio was the right guy. didn't have a good game in the midfield. And, you know, outside of that, I was okay. It wasn't a good performance. It wasn't a terrible performance. It was just an okay performance. I disagree with you. My sense is the Canada-Mexico result actually boosted U.S. fans after the Jamaica disappointment. They, they love watching Mexico get beat. So I thought it actually put a positive spin at the end of the night to uh, what happened. I mean, I mean, listen, I, I, I love the story that is emerging with this Canada team. Like I said, I, I, I was 16 years old. I remember being in the lobby of the Holiday Inn at uh, Colorado Springs. I was playing in the Pikes Peak Invitational that <laughs> summer, and we would all gather around. There was a, a television set up, and we would watch it, and Canada was my team. So I, I hope that they, they they continue on. And this is this is a very, very good Canadian team. But I, I don't know. I think they looked at it. I mean, I, I think a lot of people looked at it and said, look what Canada is doing. Not that we're out of, of the World Cup or anything like that, but in the context of that moment, yes, you could be happy for Canada, but I think... People that wanted to find something wrong with the Jamaica result, I only think this only uh, this only helped them and inc- increased their uh, ability to look at it and say that this was wrong or Greg Berhalter should have done this or these players should have done better. It's so funny shifting to that Canada-Mexico game. Leading up to it, you sort of intuitively think that if Canada-Mexico play and the weather is terrible and it mucks up the game, that's advantage Canada, disadvantage Mexico. And that's how everybody portrayed it leading up to the game. But by the time we got there, I found myself thinking, no, Canada might be the better team right now. So the last thing they want is some horrible field where you can't play and it ends up being nil-nil. And that to me would be would have been a let off for Mexico and two points drop for you Canada. You want to see that. So you, you, I'm glad they actually were able to clean up that field enough to have to have a normal game in but Canada. I, but I think mostly it comes to a mentality, right? Like for the Canadians, as well as well as they played throughout this cycle, when was a lot, they beat the U.S. up in Canada in the Nations League, but was when the last time they beat the U.S. before that, right? When, it, when they'd never beaten Mexico in this type of setting. So I think even though John Herdman and the Canadian Federation would have had confidence that their team is good and capable of playing, can you give your team, your fans, everybody an edge by saying, hey, Mexico don't do well in cold weather. They don't do well in the snow. So then your team goes out there and they think we have an advantage, even though they might be the better team on the ball and ability to play. We saw it in Azteca. They, they went toe-to-toe with Mexico yeah. for 90 minutes. It ended minutes. up being the perfect balance because it was cold, but the field was playable. Yeah. I guess what I mean is if it had just been, I mean, we were seeing images of just the field completely in snow, and I thought, well, they're not even going to be able to kick a ball here. <laughs> and you don't want Alfonso Davies and Tejan Buchanan trying to run it at opponents having to deal with those conditions. So yeah. it ended up being the perfect scenario for them. Yeah, I, don't, that. I don't think the cold actually was the problem for Mexico. I think the field was the, uh, the, the synthetic surface in there, which it wasn't great. And by the way, that stadium is evidently being considered for the World Cup in 2026. I, I don't think it's a great looking stadium. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the distance between the yeah. field, all of that kind I'm of stuff. I'm a big fan of the yeah. big But having said all of that, where we sit right now, okay, yeah. uh, uh, let's see. So now we've played eight games of the 14 games. Obviously the U.S., if, if it ended today, they would be going to the, uh, the the World Cup, which is ultimately the goal. Whether you're first, second, or third, let's be honest, really doesn't matter. Ultimately, it's about getting back to the World Cup from a U.S. perspective. But I don't think any of us here or anybody else out there that understands the game that has been around would be surprised, for example, if, because we know the U.S. has to go to Canada, Canada to play this game. Yeah. If the U.S. went up to Canada and beat Canada. I also wouldn't be surprised, Tata Martina right now, hot seat and all that kind of stuff, if Mexico, which has four of their last six games at home at the Azteca, I know one of them is against the U.S., but four of their last games, if they 
figure out a way to get uh, to get to be one of those three. And then who knows, because the soccer gods work in that way, they end up beating the U.S. in Qatar and go on to that sixth game in the in the World Cup or something like that. And nobody gives a crap ultimately what happened yeah. in qualifying. But we are at this moment right now. And every little thing that happens on and off the field, whether it's uh, U.S. playing down in Jamaica, whether it's the snow, all of these different things, whether who it's, who's under a hot seat means so much right now because there is so much at, yeah. at stake right now. But I do think that sometimes some perspective just gets thrown out the window. Where we are right now, I, I think I think this is a good place. I am I am not cautiously optimistic. I am optimistic about this team qualifying for the World Cup when it comes to the U.S. I, I am too. And having watched the progression and the highs and the lows and riding the waves, I, I think that Greg Berhalter and his team, at least externally, have done a good job of of you know, communicating that, look, whatever's said out there, we, we're trying to keep inside a, a perspective of where we're heading and building and growing. And I have seen some maturity from this team. And, I, and the big game, though, is against Canada th- this next window, because if the U.S. do beat Canada, it, th- that's going to be a very difficult game. Wherever it ends up being played and there's rumors, it's going to be on a synthetic surface and it's going to be freezing and that game will be intense it'll be ugly it will be a roll your sleeves up type of game where you have to dig in and try and get some points because canada will know if they beat the u.s in that game that's pretty much them yeah punch their ticket to the world cup they're they're there but there is a way in which the u.s could go up to canada win u.s beat panama and then canada lose and you know panama all of a sudden are in that mix too right so it's there's four teams it's a four pesky Panama. Pesky like Panama. every time we're, we're, we're scoreboard checking and the U.S. are top after the Mexico and then Panama pull out the, the two goals and they come from behind and they win. And it's what makes it fun. But look, U.S. fans should feel confident right now. I think they should be optimistic, but not overly confident and cocky to the point where, hey, we're, we're getting mad about a point in, against Jamaica on the road. I, I think that's where you try to put it all together and say, look, we're, we're OK right now. All right, well, we know that we are a year out uh, from the World Cup in Qatar, uh, but people are already punching their tickets. Uh, Those musical chairs are happening, and some people have seats and some people don't. Uh, 13 of the 32 uh, are already decided, a lot of those coming from uh, Europe. Uh, And some big surprises now where we have a lot of the usual suspects when it comes to people like uh, Germany and England and the Netherlands uh, back in and that kind of stuff. But then some question marks right now when it comes to people like Portugal and defending European champions Italy right now. Uh, thoughts, takeaways when it comes to uh, UEFA uh, World Cup qualifying uh, that uh, is, is happening right now and will continue into 2022. I don't know if you recall, but in our last podcast, I predicted England would clinch a berth by beating San Marino 8-0. Uh, <laughs> That's I why gave, we have I you gave here. San Marino too much credit. It was 10-0 in the end. <laughs> uh, but so that's triggered some conversations about do they need to tweak uh European qualifying to get rid of, weed out all these minnows because is it ridiculous to have 10 nil games? Uh, but setting that aside, uh, the, the big story for me is Portugal and Italy dropping down to the playoffs. Portugal, I look like an idiot there because I'm, I've been going on and on on the podcast about I'm enamored of their talent. I thought they'd be a prime candidate to win this World Cup. They still might be if they qualify. I mean, how a country that has, you go up and down the line of Ruben Diaz, João Cancelo, uh, Bernardo Silva, Bruno Fernandes, João Felix, 
uh, Diogo Jota, Cristiano Ronaldo. They're so much more talented than they were when they won the Euros. And yet that's almost been the problem because Fernando Santos seems like his instinct is to adopt a more pragmatic approach and he doesn't know now how to incorporate all these talented players. How shocked are you by Portugal's predicament? Yeah, I, I'm surprised because every time you, you turn on the TV, Ronaldo's scoring for Portugal and it seems like he's scoring hat-tricks and he did throughout the... the he's this he's about to blame Ronaldo. Here no, it comes. Uh, Here no, it comes. I, I, I actually don't. I, you know, he's a guy that will win you the big games and he's a guy I, I almost if we're talking about betting and fox bet odds he, odds on ronaldo scoring in the playoff to get portugal there I, i'm not worried about them getting although it is a random draw right and so you could end up with portugal against italy to go to the world cup Ex explain to people how, how it works from from now because it's teams, a little different six seated six unseated they're going to be drawn into three little four team brackets oh, okay so and the, completely the seated teams will host semifinals against unseeded teams. But then in the final, it could you end could up being that. Portugal, yeah, Italy, there, yeah. and the location is drawn there. So we don't know which where it would be. So man. It's, it's squeaky bum, man. Exactly. You know, like getting there. And that's why the, these these points and these fine margins were so important. It was so crazy watching Mitrovic score that late goal and then celebrating on the field because they Portugal thought they were in. Um, but look, another team that I'm interested, I think, of talking about teams that have already qualified from Europe would be Denmark, uh, a team that just absolutely cruised through, looked really good in the Euros. They could be a sneaky team that, again, could make a deeper run in the World Cup. I've always found it to be such an interesting paradox in a sport where there's so much randomness in an individual game. We've never really had a Cinderella World Cup champion. Yeah. Only eight nations have won it. They've all been teams that going into those tournaments were among the favorites. And so you wonder, maybe this is the World Cup. It's in November in Qatar, and there's so many variables. This might be the one where somebody like a Denmark wins it, you know, which I, given the way they've, they got to the semifinals of the Euros, they've done great in qualifying. I don't know if they'd be completely out of nowhere, but just in the sense of their overall pedigree as a soccer nation. Yeah, and, and I think it's a, it's a good time. We're a year out from the World Cup for next year to consider if you're a fan at home right now thinking about, well, should I go to the World Cup? This will be the most fan-friendly and team-friendly, player-friendly World Cup we've ever seen because... Everybody's going to be centrally located. Every stadium's within an hour. Fans can go to multiple games within a day, but it also means for teams, like what does that do for teams that don't have to travel now and are based in one location and can, you know, bring all types of sports performance and nutrition and create an edge or an advantage that perhaps other teams didn't, right? You think about the, the most, uh, the richest teams in the world. In the U.S. when we traveled, right, we had home gyms and we had this and that and it, we felt like it gave us a little bit of an edge compared to other teams. I think you might see that part in this World Cup perhaps be a little leveled out. Before we leave uh, UEFA, because uh, there's a you know there's a discussion out there, and actually all confederations kind of have this: is is it hard? Is it not? Is UEFA a difficult qualifying process or not? Because you, you know mentioned you mentioned some teams that just cruised right through without a problem, and then when we see what happens with Italy or, or Portugal, I hear people talking about, oh, it's so much more difficult than people uh, realize. It's more conducive to sparkling campaigns because there's so many minnows that you can run up big scores against. Uh, regions like Conmebol and Concacaf, uh, it's more of a slog. But in those regions, you have more of a margin for error. You can have some negative results along the way, and you're still going to make it. In, in Europe, you do have less of a margin for error. You sometimes end up with these groups where there's two good teams and everybody else is terrible. So you know that those two good teams are going to beat up on everybody mm -hmm. else and it's just going to come down to those couple of head-to-head -head games. And if you have a bad day, all of a sudden you find yourself second in the group in a playoff and then you're facing another good team in a knockout scenario. So, you know, if you look at Portugal and Italy, they haven't done anything that wrong. Italy hasn't lost a, a game. 
Uh, Portugal lost only one, mm -hmm. but they were in groups where there was another good team. And so the margin for error was small and a couple of bounces didn't go their way. Jorginho misses a couple of penalties in the two head-to-head -head games against Switzerland. Next thing you know, Italy are in a playoff, which is, by the way, what happened to them four years ago. They were in the same group as Spain. They finished second to Spain, had to face Sweden in a playoff and got knocked out of the World Cup. That's not really doing anything horrible. It's not losing to Trinidad and Tobago, but, it, in, you know, it's... All right, well, we mentioned that 13 of the 32 teams have been decided. A lot of confederations are continuing on and will continue on into uh, 2022. Uh, like Comnable, let's finish up with Comnable because two teams have qualified out of there in the form of your Brazil and Argentina, the latest uh, to join uh, the folks in booking their ticket to Qatar. Uh, obviously, top four go. Uh, and then there's a, a half space in terms of a playoff. But who do you see besides Brazil and Argentina uh, making up that four? Well, Ecuador have separated themselves. They're in third place, six points above the rest of the pack. So I now think it would take a major collapse for them not to make it. So Ecuador would definitely be that good young team, team. too, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then uh, Colombia, although they've forgotten how to score goals, they've gone five straight games without scoring, which is amazing with their Luis Muriel, Duvan Zapata, Luis Diaz, Juan Cuadrado. Hamas Rodriguez back in the mix now, and still they, they can't find the back net. It's 466 minutes, but still they have a fairly easy schedule down the stretch. So I think they'll be that fourth team. And then it'll be between Peru, Uruguay, and Chile for that playoff spot, which gun to my head, I'd pick Uruguay just because of the pedigree. Right. But you mentioned the top two. I want to I want to ask Stu about this because Argentina and Brazil played the other night mm -hmm. and it was nil-nil, which I, as a Brazilian, I was actually pleased with because we walked into a cauldron environment there. They put that game not in Buenos Aires, but in this small town in San Juan in this little bandbox of a stadium. <laughs> and they really wanted it to be an intimidating environment. No Neymar, no Casemiro was suspended, although it ended up being a good thing because Fabinho stepped in and was phenomenal. But Argentina, I could tell, they really wanted to punctuate their Copa America triumph by beating Brazil again to show they are the best team in South America right now. Brazil gets out of there with a draw, nil-nil. How do you see those teams stacking up between them, each other, who's the better team out of those two? And then in terms of realistically going on and, and, and trying to win the World Cup. Yeah, I think it's a lot of the same conversation we had throughout the Copa America, which is that these teams now are pragmatic as well as Jogo Bonito. And uh, more so, what a job Scaloni's done with Argentina and, and transforming them from a group of individuals that have talent and you build around a superstar and Messi to a team and a team that is defensively sound and organized difficult to beat, up for the kind of the tough, ugly types of games. And that's what the Brazil-Argentina games have been, where they're competitive, both teams have tons of talent, but also not willing to concede much. And look, I, I think Brazil have an edge. Brazil have been flawless, essentially, throughout the whole qualifying and were throughout the Copa America, but then lost to Argentina and couldn't beat Argentina again. So I, I, I think it's a result where Brazil could find positives and say, you know, going on the road, tough environment without Casemiro, no Neymar, we got a point. But still, the expectation is for Brazil to win. For Argentina, you could also make a case and say, hey, look, we once again show we weren't going to get rolled over by Brazil. We're in the mix. We're a heavyweight again, uh, once again in South America. And we're a team that could make a genuine deep run at the World Cup. And I do believe that if they can continue the way that they are, they have a nice balance of youth, especially in defense. You still have Messi taken along and you still have a, a number of pieces around them that I, I, I think Argentina are good. I would still, in a one-off in a World Cup, I would add that to Brazil though. Yeah, Rodrigo de Paul is a phenomenal player. I love he him, was yeah. great again. Yeah, in that he's game. 
Excellent player. Engine run all day, man. But Lex, what we've concluded is yeah. both Brazil and the U.S. picked up nice points on the road on Tuesday. Brazil away to Argentina, U.S. away to Jamaica. Exactly. That's <laughs> so. exactly what we've done. It's um, a nice way to put a bow on it. Do, do you think, uh, I guess it may be, uh, you know, a, uh, we, we talk so much about the amount of time that players spend uh, and the wear and tear on them and the travel and stuff like that. Both of these teams now have qualified for the World Cup, whereas the U.S. and so many other teams are going to continue on into 2021. Do, do these players travel within the next windows? How does that work? It's tricky. Brazil qualified very early for the last World Cup, and I don't think uh, Chichi used that last year wisely. He got sort of caught in between, should I be experimenting right now, or should I just keep playing the same guys to build up that chemistry? And so it's a, it's a difficult balance because there's still room for improvement. There's still spots in the squad that, that seem unsettled to me. But at the same time, you don't want to go into World Cup having not played your team for, for a right. long time. So. It, yeah, I, I don't think it's actually such a great advantage to qualify for World Cup so early. I, I'd like to still be playing competitive games into the World Cup year and maintain that edge. It's it, it, And it, it doesn't just apply to Comunable or teams that are qualified now. I was just thinking earlier that, and, and for those that don't know, the next window that's coming is the end of January. End of January, beginning of uh, February from a CONCACAF perspective. It's another three-game uh, window. The next two ones are three-game uh, windows. Keep in mind, too, you guys were talking about goalkeepers. When it comes to Matt Turner, okay, mm -hmm. or when it comes to uh, Zach Steffen, there's a chance that yeah. they might not have played a game for a month. I know there's a U.S. game uh, at the end of December, but there's a chance. And who knows how, where Matt Turner goes when it comes to uh, the playoffs. So it's really tricky, and it's going to be an interesting thing, as is 2022, just as a year. We know that uh, the EPL came out with their schedule. Other leagues are going to come out with their their changed schedule because it is so unique having a November-December uh, World Cup, and it's going to play games uh, and maybe a little bit of havoc on players, on coaches, on clubs, on fan alike. But you know what? Adjust uh, and adapt or die, as they say, Mossy. And we will see what happens as, as I can't we wait. That's going to be great. Year a year. And, and it's going to go like that, as I said. And I can't wait to, to hang with you guys there. Uh, it's going to be such an interesting uh, World Cup. Have you started Cup. building your binder yet for the World Cup now? You're My legendary binder. Teams, uh, start them going. I have built it in that I have the binder ready. Now, what goes in it uh, with all these games that are happening here, which is why I asked Mossy, because I don't want to watch games that aren't going to give me any kind of uh, context as to what these teams and players are come November. And it's a crapshoot. We know we're, we're trying to figure out what they're going to look like yeah. in November, December of 2022. There might be different players. There might be different coaches, to your point. All sorts of things can change over the year. But that year is going to come fast. But 13 of the 32 uh, slots are taken. We hope that the U.S., uh, when all is said and done, is and there too. My you got something else thing, too? Though, guys, one year, congratulations, 200 episodes. Thank you. Mostly that Thank you. you've been able to put up with each other. Barely. Um, Barely. Bigger Barely. congratulations to Mossy for, for putting up with him. But <laughs> Would, Keep up the good work, would boys. Would Stu be the number one guest in the history of the State of the Union podcast? In terms of appearances? Yes. Yeah, check, yes. The, check the stats, Mossy. You should have that offhand. Uh, yeah. yeah. And he's there money when it comes to engagement, uh, they tell me. Even uh, co-hosted recently. Good-looking guy, you know, and people want to hear what he has to say and just look oh, at him no. and all sorts of good things. I'm so jealous. It's it's wonderful. Thank you, Stu, for, uh, for coming by again, as always. And you are always welcome at the State of the Union for a minute, for a segment for the entire show, or you can just hang out here <laughs> and, eat, and eat the food. <laughs> uh, all right, we will be back uh, with more of the State of Union. Don't go anywhere. All right, welcome back, and we've come to the end of yet another show. And rather than give you my my one for the road, I wanted to you know much more include uh, David Mossy here, and again. Uh, tell you how much I appreciate everything that you do for us, not just on the State of the Union, but just in general. You have made this 
an enjoyable experience each and every week that we do it. I know sometimes we meander, sometimes it's in studios, sometimes it's different places around the world, but it's been an absolute thrill and pleasure for 200 episodes uh, to work with you. You make it so much uh, fun and I really appreciate it. As uh, as do so many other people that are that are behind the camera um, that make us look good, which, as you know, is not the easiest thing. I'm curious, though, because you are, you are not necessarily the most effusive and, and not sensitive. I, you are sensitive, but, you know, you you oftentimes are, are very subdued in the way that you talk about things. I'm curious how awesome it has been for you to work alongside me. No, it's been terrific, and yeah, it's, we're going on four years now, which for a, for really? a podcast is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, that, that is, we you know most podcasts die a very slow, not slow, a very quick death after about a year when people lose. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm wondering how much longer this is going to go. You think, uh, well, I mean, for those of us that, uh, for those out there that do follow, you know we talk about what we're watching, and you know, sometimes people jump the shark and sometimes episodes and seasons kind of go, uh, you know, off the rails here. And then, you know, it's the, the beginning of the end for a show. Do we think there's somebody out there that hasn't listened to a single episode because they're waiting to binge them all? From <laughs> start to finish? Yes. Um, <laughs> no, but I do want to shout out uh, Luis Aguilar, our producer, who, you know, I've dubbed the Gerald Ford of uh, podcast producing because it was an incredible confluence of events that just led him off. to, yes. Uh, if you remember, our original producers were Alex Dowd and Francis Silva. Uh, they are the David Caruso and Shelley Long of the podcast world. Both made catastrophic decisions leaving this podcast. And now that we're taking off, I'm sure they regret it wherever they are. But uh, nevertheless, I think we've landed on the right guy here with Luis. And so, you know, he's getting all the fame and fortune that comes with working on this podcast, which they could have had, but. You know. Oh my, he's definitely leaving next week now. <laughs> now, that you said, now that you said that. Now, everybody, uh, it, it's. As as everybody knows out there, you know we just get on and, and babble on and stuff like that. But there's there's so much work that goes on to put it out on a consistent basis and do it to uh, the level of quality that we all expect. And so thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. This has been a, a wonderful ride. We will we will continue. There will be more episodes. There will be more seasons, uh, whether you want them or not. But we have a great time doing it, and it's uh, and it's cool. And you know as we have told you throughout this pod, this this special celebration pod of not only uh, 200 episodes, but also what is to come. There's so much more soccer to come and so many more exciting things to talk about uh, on and off the field, not the least of which is a year from now in Qatar for, as we said, what is going to be a very, very special and very, very unique World Cup. My friend, I love you. All right, onward to 201, and we'll see you in Qatar a year from now. <laughs> 